This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikolko, co-director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a professor here at Management at Wharton. Now, just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 and the show replays a few times throughout the week. Uh, if you have any comments or questions during today's show, please give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That is 1-844-942-7866. Uh, coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Ravi Rishi Maharaj, uh, the CEO and founder of GigSky, a leading provider of global cellular connectivity solutions for consumers. Uh, but now I'd like to welcome Scott Snyder, who's here with me in the studio. Uh, Scott is a partner in Hydric and Struggles, where he works with global companies to achieve and accelerate digital transformation and innovation. Uh, prior to Hydric, uh, Scott was the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at Safeguard Scientifics, and uh, Scott co-founded Mobiquity and has held executive positions with several Fortune 500 companies, including GE and Lockheed Martin. Now, Scott is very much a product of UPenn, having earned his BS, his MS, and a PhD in Systems Engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. Scott, thank you for being here. Hi, Nikolai. Um, so... Maybe to get us started, tell us a little bit about what Hydric and Struggles does, right? They have sort of two business lines. There's executive search. There's consulting. Tell us a little bit about what they do. Great. Uh, I mean, Hydric and Struggles uh, has been known and has one of the uh, leading global brands in executive search, uh, which has been their core business for a long time. And uh, recently, as part of the journey to extend and, and expand its own business model, uh, spun up the consulting part of Hydric. Uh, which is known as Hydra Consulting, which uh, really is about helping leaders, teams, and organizations continue on the journey of of accelerating performance and eventually becoming leaders in their space. Um, so we're really uh, an exciting new part, almost a startup within uh -huh. a very established company at Hydra yeah. Struggles. Interesting. And so what's your role there? Yeah, so uh, my role within the consulting group is actually given my digital background uh, and given digital is really on the mind of just mm -hmm. about every exec in the Absolutely. world right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's really our ability to take our expertise in, um, in what makes leaders successful, what makes teams successful and what cultures really inspire innovation, uh, bring that expertise to focus on the digital transformation dilemma mm -hmm. that most companies are in now. And, and if you read the stats, it's not very good, right? right? Most leaders feel like they're not very far along the journey they'd yep. like to be. And a lot of that, we think, has to do with the human element and less so with picking the right technology. Right. Good. Um, so maybe let's start with the technology, though, because I know you are a technology guy. Absolutely. <laughs> and, it's kind uh, of hard for me to say that. I, I know, because, uh, I mean, way back when, in 2009, right, you wrote a book on the new world of wireless, how to compete in 4G. Now we're in the 5G world. So maybe let's start out kind of what are actually all the technical opportunities and challenges out there. So let's start yeah. with there, and then we'll move to the management part, I to the hard part. I need to go part. back and right. revise the book now. <laughs> well, of course. Because uh, uh, 5G is coming. So, yeah. um I, I think where we are, and 5G is a little bit of a different paradigm for wireless because 
whereas 4G really was much about data, mm-hmm. whereas the previous generations were really suited towards voice and data was a bolt-on, yep. as we saw with streaming movies and uh, you know, rich conversations and other things we now do with mobile internet, right. uh, data was dominant. So thank God we had 4G to come along with LTE, and, mm-hmm. and that gave us the capacity to at least stem the tide of consumer demand uh, yeah. for the wireless systems. But now we're starting to break in a different way, and it more has to do with connected things. Okay. So uh, the current generation of cellular really wasn't designed to handle thousands, millions, billions, or even trillions of things connecting to it because all those connections consume resource and capacity, even if they're small, even if it's a sensor on an oil tank or a forest uh, sensor communicating back in. Um, So one is expanding the number of connections that the current system can handle. The second is we're starting to get into this uh, real-time world. So whether it's an autonomous vehicle or a surgical robot, the ability with artificial intelligence to potentially give commands to that specific device mm-hmm. um, without a real-time connection or a very low – what we call low latency connection that uh, almost has no delay in it, right. um, it really becomes ineffective. And we're seeing that even with virtual reality. Uh, the reason why we're not untethered and running around with virtual reality headsets is because the experience isn't great with, with high delay in it. So um, that's the other thing about 5G. It brings the latency down to mm-hmm. a very small, almost below the human perception level or wow. what we call tactile internet of one millisecond. And then obviously the capacity. So the capacity grows uh, anywhere from uh, 100 to 1,000 X uh, what today's systems can handle with 5G. So you will get your uh, high def movie in, in a few seconds. Yeah. What's the what's the timeline on this? It sounds all kind of great. Like I want to have it tomorrow, but uh, there's probably a lot of uh, yeah infrastructure. Well, well uh, as you can imagine, is like with every technology, there's there's still not alignment on the standards. So okay. uh, the official standards are coming out really over the next two years. There's spectrum. So each country and region of the world is wrestling with how to let out spectrum. And one of the unique wrinkles of 5G is, uh, in addition to operating in the current bands that cellular operates, it has something called millimeter wave, which in the past has really been relegated to scientific and military kind of bands. And in the past, there was something called LMDS that that did some terrestrial microwave. But now uh, that bandwidth is seen as really valuable. And we've gotten improvements in in computers and microelectronics to allow us to take advantage of that. So that's a whole new spectrum that governments are wrestling with to let out. But the potential is enormous because it can handle very high speeds. Uh, but the cells have to be very close together. So, so millimeter wave um, is a big deal. And, and the other thing is the handsets. Nobody's mm-hmm. making handsets yet that have these new bands in them or, or the new protocols. So uh, next year is the first time several of the handset manufacturers will actually have pre-approved 5G handsets out. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, as you say, this, is, this has become a global industry, a global technology. Uh, so... We're creating a new global standard. I could imagine different countries having different opinions on sure. who should be the leader on this. And uh, um, I mean, usually when I look at these developments, uh, Asia seems to be sort of at the forefront of at least sort of consumer adoption. Uh, is that something similar we're seeing here? Or? Yeah, I think so. And, and there's a bunch of reasons why Asia's leading. Um, China was um, got mired in a little bit of a standards uh, stalemate on 4G uh, that actually put it behind a bit. Mm. 
Um, and now it sees 5G as almost a greenfield opportunity to go leap ahead yeah. right, and, and do it from scratch. I think there's a lot of a push there. Also, people are tying 5G very much to other emerging technologies that are viewed as very strategic. You know, In addition to IoT, AI mm-hmm. systems, um, whether they're run in the cloud or even if they're run at the edge, they'll still be pushing a lot of data back and forth and uh, this notion of real-time monitoring. So – um, the more 5G is associated with these other emerging technologies, mm-hmm. it, it may become more strategic for these countries to push ahead and, and make it a priority. Yeah. So 5G, of course, is sort of one set of technologies for data transmission, basically. Mm-hmm. Are there other technologies out there? I've heard about LoRa and all kinds of other other things. Kind of, uh, Is there more to it than just yeah, 5G? Yeah, well, there, there's kind of two philosophies and uh, you almost see it in the U.S. carriers taking different okay. approaches. Um, you know, some of the carriers have been very aggressive on 5G saying, you know, this is very strategic and uh, you know, 4G doesn't support especially the IoT vision or mm-hmm. some of these new real-time cases. Other carriers are saying we can do everything we need with 4G with a few additions. Like we can do something called network slide to basically take slices of the network Mm -hmm. and allow it to have light protocols that support all these new devices connecting while we still support today. Um, So I think there's a little bit of a a battle uh, Mm -hmm. in the marketplace of people either – and this happened with 4G as well. Some carriers were much more aggressive. Some weren't. And I think you'll see um, you'll see that play out. I mean, Verizon's deploying 5G right yep. now in a bunch yep. of U.S. markets, uh, but mostly they're doing it to the home. So right, right, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's fascinating. So now that's sort of a little bit on the on the technology side. <laughs> but as you're saying, uh, technology is one thing, and we've got a lot of PhDs working hard on, yes. <laughs> on making that technology work. Uh, but then bringing that technology into the company is a whole different story. That's right. Right. So. Um, what are some kind of the, you know, we'll probably peel the onion as, as we go along this afternoon, but, but sort of what are the first things that come to mind of thinking about what are sort of the management challenges of when it comes to incorporating these new technologies into companies? Yeah, I think, um, I think um, and it's really one of the things we talk about in, in an upcoming book that I'm working on called Goliath's Revenge, mm-hmm. which is about how established companies um, really act like disruptors or startups, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, as you know, you've studied this quite a bit. There's plenty of impediments. Um, mm-hmm. The first has to do with culture. And a lot of times people perceive culture as just uh, values, but culture is also in the way the company uh, acts, right, mm-hmm. and the way it performs things like innovation. So uh, one of the things we see as a major impediment we talk about in the book is creating really a bimodal innovation model, one that allows employees, uh, empowers employees to innovate around today's business Mm -hmm. and lowers the friction around that. So if they have a good idea to uh, improve and bring sales intelligence to a conversation, uh, they could move on that, whether it's a technology solution or process solution, Mm -hmm. and have a process to get that into the market very fast. Um, while also incubating these, quote, big eye initiatives, the things that need air cover, need protection, tend to uh, drive tension with the current business. And if you don't do both, and we've seen many digital labs fail because many companies rushed in to say, let's go do something big and breakthrough. Um, and all that did was create a bunch of haves and have nots. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people slaving away in the court business said, you know, who are those cool kids over there yeah. working on the fun stuff and, and we're working on the core business and we have no tools to innovate. 
Um, so it really starts at the ground level. If you create that culture of innovation where it's in the muscle of the company, mm-hmm. then the ability to, to withstand some of those disruptive swings, uh, people get it more. They, they feel like they're all empowered. They're all swimming in the same direction. So, yeah. Well, it's sort of an interesting point you're making here in terms of these technologies. Quite often we think about them, wow, they will just create some radical new business models, and probably some of them will. Uh, but, of course, you can also use these technologies to make your existing business model better, right? Uh, and so it's really the exploration, exploitation kind of trade-off that we usually talk about. So let's stick maybe with uh, the exploration part for a moment, right? So what are some ways that you've seen of how firms have used these new technologies in their existing business models to make them better? Yeah, and sometimes it's a, a way to step your way there, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So if, yeah. if you're John Deere and you're an agricultural company that's traditionally sold equipment, um, and now you have through the availability of technology like uh, low-cost sensors and things like 4G and 5G, uh, more, more, even more directed at IoT, um, now all of a sudden the cost of putting 20, 100 sensors on your combine – uh, you know, as a start to understand how it's operating, what it's what it's uh, harvesting, where, and, and yeah. you know, the understanding the intelligence of the field, and eventually use that as a stepping stone to build autonomous equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, give intelligence back to the farmers, and you know, this is a stepping stone towards changing your business model, right? As you as you put and deploy this technology in your current business model and instrument it, you start to create. Uh, insights that allow you to start to explore new business models, um, you know, the quote, as a service model. Yeah, right. And I think many companies are starting to wake up to that potential, but uh, but they don't realize there's this, quote, flywheel effect. You know, first you have to deploy a little bit of technology right. to learn to start to open up new possibilities. Yeah. So, so you just talked about basically sometimes this will require like a cultural change inside the organization. Now, there's probably hardly any organization out there that says our culture is not to innovate. Um, So I think everyone says, right, we want to be innovative. Uh, So what is it about a culture that makes a firm more innovative or allows more innovation to come through and actually get implemented? Yeah, there's really um, six things uh, we talk about in the Goliath Revenge book. One Mm -hmm. is that you have to have some ambition to achieve a step change outcome in your market whether it's 10x lower cost, 10x higher customer experience, 10x, uh, you know, greater breadth of customers you reach, but but something that's not just incremental improvements because that's what's going to uh, move the organization towards okay. some in, in, exciting goal. Uh, we talked about the bimodal inf- innovation model. The third yep. is you need to think like a data company. Uh, we believe data and AI will create a have and have not, um, you know, type of separation yeah. in markets. And it's it's not a tomorrow journey. It's a multi-year journey because mm-hmm. it involves you know reskilling workforce. It involves a mindset that data is actually an asset. We talk about something called a data balance sheet in the book and building that up and then building your algorithmic advantage on top of that. But many companies don't even have a data mindset. Um, you know, an oil and gas platform might use one percent of the data it collects today, right? So. Um, many companies are sitting on tons of data. In fact, uh, enterprises in 2020 will control 60% of the data in the world, mm-hmm. not consumers. Yeah. I mean, that's scary as a consumer, but right. it's, it's what they're doing with it is real, the real question. The fourth is ecosystems. I know this is close to your heart. 
um, the ability to tap into innovators outside your walls mm-hmm. and rewarding solution finders and dot connectors as much as you reward inventors, mm-hmm. which most big companies tend to reward invention, yeah. not necessarily finding solutions. Uh-huh. Um, the fifth one is uh, close to Hydrix heart, which is value talent over technology. Uh, and that includes thinking of the roles that are going to drive a digital organization in the future. So we always talk about the three Ds, design, development, data science. But beyond those, new roles are going to emerge. You may have AI specialists in HR. You may have people we call product incubation managers that can quickly move from one experiment to the next, or even people that are uh, basically journey mappers Mm -hmm. that basically go out and study new use cases, almost like anthropologists. So I think having these kind of uh, new roles emerging, dispersed, and and people that can take on those new skills Mm -hmm. in your workforce is going to be key. And then the last one that I think may be the most important is reframing your purpose as a company. Because to be relevant to the digital native workforce, you have to have a purpose that is really meaningful and taking Uh on a problem in the world that people care about. Uh, And that's difficult for some companies, right? If you're a chemical company, you know, reframing your purpose to say, no, we really are about, you know, doing good to enable the planet. And I think companies like Unilever and Patagonia and others have done a phenomenal job at creating that kind of halo effect where Mm -hmm. people want to innovate in the company and people want to join them in that journey. So. Uh, For those of you just uh, tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, I'm Nikolai Zickelko, and I'm speaking with Scott Snyder, a partner in Hydric and Struggles, where he works with global companies to accelerate digital transformation and innovation. Um, So you just had a lot of points, right, in in those those six. Let me pick up a few of them. Um, So on the one hand, uh, you you were saying about the ecosystem, right, and really kind of thinking about right drawing in ideas not just from inside your company now you have also been involved in creating these ecosystems um right so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the game changer collaborative because that sounds very much like a uh you know an ecosystem that that's being created yeah thanks for bringing that up um it it actually stems from the fact that most established companies are not good at building ecosystems they they have ecosystems almost out of necessity with their typical vendor partners or channel partners Uh, But they don't think of ecosystems as sources of innovation necessarily. And I think we saw that as an opportunity to go prime the pump for Mm -hmm. some of these companies. Uh, And the first place to look is outside of your swim lane, right? Because uh, I think even more so with today's emerging technologies, companies are solving the same problem. They just don't realize it. So it might be deploying AI and customer service and what are the challenges around that and the governance models or even thinking about something like blockchain to track you know, your product flow or supply, uh, whether you're a pharmaceutical company or a retailer or even a chemical company, you might be uh, addressing very similar versions of variants of, of that problem. So we decided to bring companies together mm-hmm. and, um, and address both the hard problems around technology adoption, but also the soft problems. Okay. Uh, yeah. Do you have the right venture leaders? Do you have the right model to connect with uh, and scan for outside innovators? Um, do you have the right uh, people that can, you know, experiment uh, in, in a very uh, confined environment? So that w- that's something we decided. And then also bring in a healthy mix of disruptors from the outside to educate them on where things are headed. Mm-hmm. So we've created this Game Changer Collaborative. Uh, we have a number of large corporate members. Uh, actually, Penn's a member, which is great um, because it's obviously a large enterprise yep. too. 
and we uh, we continue to explore the edge of these emerging technologies. But more importantly, as as you've probably seen, the ability of organizations to absorb them is is actually lower than the progress of the technology itself. And we're right. seeing that in spades with things like AI and, and yeah. sensorization and immersive experiences. So um, so that's a key theme for us. Great. So what are some uh, established firms that are doing this well, at least in pockets, right? I mean, presumably no, no one has cracked the code on everything, but maybe some interesting examples to share. Yeah, I think one that's been in the news a lot, maybe on the negative side, but I actually think the silver <laughs> lining is General Motors, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, Mary Barra took a lot of flack for... Uh, obviously, the, the announcement to close some plants in the U.S. and Canada. Um, but if you look at that, that's exactly the kind of courageous decision that needs to happen to go fund uh, the second speed of their business model, right? Yeah. So, you know, six years ago or so, they committed to a very uh, pretty ambitious purpose, right, of triple zero, you know, zero crashes, zero con congestion and, and zero emissions. And uh, when you think about that, That required a, a lot to get to. It also meant that GM had to move beyond its current business model of car manufacturing and say, we're really going to be a sustainable transportation company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That facilitated investments in Lyft, investments in crews to create autonomy, yeah. which is a huge part of uh, achieving that kind of goal. And then obviously the electrification investment they've made and, you know, they're pretty close to Tesla. They both have 200,000 plus vehicles on the road now on the EV side. And... Um, You know, they, they still have a long way to go. But if you look at where they are on the journey and some of the bold decisions they've mm -hmm, made to mm -hmm. create this kind of second speed to their business model of, you know, the outer business models around ride sharing and transportation while they're continuing to make the car better. Uh, I think that's a company that, that is on the right track. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a journey. Right. I think uh, in our book. Well, one of the things we realize is no, there's no journey that took less than three to five years. Uh -huh. And I think while that can be sobering for leaders, it's also something leaders and boards need to understand that this is really uh, something that has to take place over time yeah. to get all the rails in place for companies to you know, be a disruptor. Right. Now, that's an interesting point because, as you said, right, these are mainly organizational changes, right? And organizational changes just take time, particularly if you're a large company. Okay, Absolutely. if I'm a small startup, I can maybe pivot my 10 people. Uh, but if I have 100,000 people, that, that's harder. Um, but now when you're saying, okay, so we need to think about a three-, four-year change initiative within my organization – um, over those three, four years, technology will have evolved dramatically, right? Um, so in four years, the technology that I'm going to employ will be very different than the one that's now. So how do I do that, right? I mean, on the one hand, I need to change my organization while kind of the, it's, a, it's a, a running target, right? Moving target. It's a great question because, yeah, five years ago, we weren't talking about things like blockchain or, or yeah. VR as, as mainstream tools. And, you know, blockchain jury's still out, right? I, I think uh, people are maybe too impatient and realize sure. you got to realize it's a nascent technology. Yeah. Whereas AI, we're actually, people don't realize we're probably on the third act of AI. Mm -hmm. So we've learned a lot along the way. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is finding talent that has the ability to learn faster. Uh -huh. um, and I think um, there's this idea of having a, almost a learning contract with your employees that, you know, you will continue to upskill yourself. And I think yeah. in many cases, digital natives um, are inherently wired that way. And yet big corporations don't give them the mobility to learn quickly. Right. They lock them into jobs or, or career paths. And so I think we're going to have to change the way we think about people getting experiences 
because to your point, um, the technologies that are dominant today are going to change five years from now. So it really comes down to learning is your advantage. And do you have a workforce? We call it digital dexterity. The ability to execute in today while you have another foot in the mm-hmm. future yeah. is a is very hard to, to really ingrain that in your workforce. But that we think is, is a key differentiator. But that, that kind of raises this interesting question again for organizations, right, of – well, I, I can tell my employer, go ahead and educate yourself. But they're saying, well, you know, give me time, give me resources to do so. And then the firm says, well, if I give you time and resources, you might leave tomorrow. So then I've invested all of you, right? And so we're having sort of this struggle within organizations, presumably, right? Exactly. That's uh, why it's got to be a two-way contract that, yeah. that both sides agree on what the, you know, the direction is and, and why they're doing it. And, mm-hmm. and both need to feel like it's helping both the company yeah. and the individual. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately, we're going to have a dilemma our hands. We're going to have a workforce that is not skilled for the future. Right. Uh, and I think AI has obviously brought that to the forefront. Yep. There's been a lot of right. discussion around it. So I think the more proactive companies can be in creating that kind of implied contract uh, to give people the time, the investment to reskill, it's going to pay off in spades. Well, and, and just to push that a little bit further, I mean, it's not that uh, people don't have the skills. No one has the skills because the the, they don't uh, have the, right, time. the the target is moving, right? So no one has right now the skills to do what need, is needed to, uh, in five years. So we all need to learn kind of as we go along. And how do we create those resources, that time, that that, that breath to do that? Um, so you mentioned a number of times the digital natives or I don't know whether those are the millennials uh, that are right now sort <laughs> of in, in the workforce. Uh, and there's right now this interesting uh, debate out there uh, of – well, are we just confusing an age cohort effect? Because look, you know, the younger guys are always different from the older guys, right? And regardless of which year you look at, it's like it's always the, the this new cohort coming in that's really so different. And uh, there are certain patterns that just are age related rather than like, uh, technology related. Uh, but there are probably some things that are different about but but millennials for this generation. So, so what are some some of your experiences along those lines? Yeah, I actually wrote a, um, a Knowledge at Wharton article with my daughter, Morgan, who is obviously much younger than me, 25, uh-huh. and went to Penn. And it was a fun experience because I got to hear her point of view. Yeah. And, and we talked about viewing your company through the eyes of a digital native and both as a customer and as, and as an employee. And um, I think the big things were um, it comes back to purpose. Mm-hmm. If companies, you know, most uh, digital natives perceive large companies as as not necessarily caring about the planet and society. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. kind of just more users than givers. And I think if you can change that perception and truly break through to have a purpose, you know, like the GM one that people can rally around and get excited about, that that's a huge part because they, you know, digital natives in general, millennials, Gen Zers tend to want to make more of a difference. I think the second thing is this job mobility thing. If yeah. You can create an internal labor marketplace where they feel like they can continue to learn and evolve because the minute they stop learning uh, or hit the wall, that's when they're going to leave. Right. Um, I think that's a huge challenge challenge for the HR systems of large companies, but it's absolutely one that, that uh, could be exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I think it's just a matter of uh, recognizing that you're not going to keep all these people. But here's the challenge, Nikolai, is, you know, it used to be you needed 10 to 15 years of domain experience to be impactful in, say, a big company. Mm-hmm. Um, given the modern technology stacks, the modern ways of working, 
um, that doesn't matter anymore. And in fact, it might actually hurt you uh-huh. because you've got to unwire that. <laughs> so, so that actually puts more importance on digital natives in your workforce because they may have more relevant skills. And so there's more pressure, in my view, for companies to not only engage them but keep them. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge, right? Absolutely. So that's kind of, as you said, like hiring more and more at that level. Um, now let's talk about hiring at the senior level which is partly what Hydric <laughs> and Struggles is also about. Sure. And that is, um, and you've written a little article on that as well, a knowledge at Wharton about the chief digital officer, right? Which is like the person we put in charge for everything digital. Yeah. Which, uh, again, sort of the moment you say it like that, it's like uh, if 100 years ago we had a chief electricity officer, right? Yeah. Everything that uses electricity will make you responsible for. So uh, that probably already uh, answers on part of the problem. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> of, of what is the problem that this person uh, has to solve. But again, a lot of firms, as you were saying, kind of feel they are behind. They feel they have to do something. And so they are starting to, well, let's hire someone and make that their yeah. domain. Right. So what, what's kind of the, the problems that you've seen with, with that approach? Or what are some good things, what bad things you've seen? Yeah. And obviously the title was a little bit in jest, like because that is the, the typical default uh, is, yeah. hey, we need a chief digital officer, whether it's the board or the CEO saying that. Uh, we call it a digital savior in the article, right, which which we know doesn't really exist. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not a wrong thing to have uh, somebody who's basically providing some central control. Uh, but the reality is digital is a new way of working and doing business and is a, an umbrella, an ever-expanding umbrella of technologies. You know, mm-hmm. It's not just about mobile and e-commerce like it maybe was five years ago when we started Mobiquity. Yeah. Uh, it's a tangled web of things from, you know, blockchain, immersive experiences, cybersecurity, uh, your back end, your front end of your business, uh, you know, how you plug into the global networks. Um, I wouldn't want my head of e-commerce necessarily deciding on how I'm going to implement a smart factory solution. Right, and yet right. they're both digital. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the point we make in the article is really take a step back and think about what your ambition is as a company, uh, what you're trying to do with digital or, or data advantage, and make sure that um, it's an, it's really all the roles, whether it's the CTO, the CMO, um, you know, the chief data officer, um, really look at those as a constellation of, of the different parts of digital that make sense for different parts of your business. Um, and we talk about four different models. One is really an incubator model where Digital um, gets tested and experimented in small scope, but mm-hmm. then deployed out to the business because sometimes if you're so far behind, you need to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe if you're a more advanced business, it's it's more important to basically give digital to the business units for today's business and let them execute and give them the tools and standards to do that in a consistent way, but then have a, a digital ventures or business group that's kind of looking at the big swings, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think it really just depends on where you are in the journey, right. what your culture can handle, and, and what makes sense. Yeah. You, you may have a super digitally strong CTO today. Why why would you necessarily want to bring somebody in right. to, to necessarily yeah. create tension if that's the case? Right. So Great. So one last question because you – uh, you know, brought up learning as being the key thing. And uh, I know you were teaching classes sure. here at Penn. And uh, so what are the skills uh, that people should acquire, that our students should acquire to be kind of equipped, at least with the learning tools, <laughs> to to continue to learn, right? So what are the, some of the skills you think people should really try to get their hands around? Yeah, I think um, if you take a step back and don't, you know, obviously technology is going to continue to move yeah. as we talked about. I, I do think data 
um, and some understanding of what advanced analytics and AI can do are going to be perpetual and, and persistent uh, as a differentiator in almost every role, whether mm-hmm. you're a general counsel, whether you're a finance person, whether you're a supply chain person. Uh, that's something that everybody needs to have an awareness of. Now, does it mean you need to be able to build uh, convolutional neural nets? No, but you need to understand that there's a you know constellation of these technologies out there, what they can do, and and you can at least converse with your chief yeah. AI officer about it, like what problem should we go after, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's number one. So I think the data mindset of uh, you know what's possible data and how you turn that into an advantage. I think um, having this at least understanding of vocabulary around mm-hmm. digital. Um, so when people talk about them, you know, and I, I like to use three words, immersive, cognitive, and trusted, mm-hmm. because I think there won't be an experience or an application built in the future that doesn't have those three elements yeah. successful. What do those mean? How do you unpack those and really understand, okay, an immersive experience can be a voice agent. It could be a set of VR goggles. It could be a mobile experience. It could be an Apple Watch. And understanding the variety and the pros and cons of those. So uh, so one of the things we try and teach leaders is is making sure they at least have the vocabulary yeah. and can talk the language and understand how to translate that. I think then it's about innovation uh-huh. and really understanding how you have to evolve your innovation model, both your little i continual innovation and your disruptive or breakthrough innovation models to take advantage of these new mm-hmm. digital technologies. Um and then, of course, that trans, you know, the, the, the hardest one is business model innovation. Right. So I think that's important to understand how these technologies might actually direct you or set up a business model shift. And then lastly, um, as a leader, what kind of culture, purpose, environment you want to create to allow this to happen organically over time? Because yeah. it's not always going to be directed from the right. top. And in fact, that's not sustainable. Absolutely. Right. But sometimes yeah. some things have to get directed and protected yeah. to get moving. Great. Well, Scott, thank you so much for having joined me today. Thank you. Uh, it was it's great. been great talking. Thank you, Scott. Uh, we need to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, I'll be joined by Ravi Rishi Maharaj, the CEO and founder of GigSky. Uh, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 